0: I remember I tried to raise the key to that song a couple years ago and I don't know what happened, I don't know what came out of my mouth, but it was entirely too high and we were lucky nobody died uh, that day. David raised that a lot better than I did. It's a beautiful song. I still have not got the guts to try to raise that key when I've let it uh, since then. Maybe one day I will, but Uh, What a blessing and privilege it is to be able to sing songs together, to be able to pray together as a family. Appreciate the prayer on my behalf. Uh, Opportunity and privilege to worship God today and to commune with Christ. And I'm always very grateful to be able to study God's Word uh, here with you. And this morning, we're going to be finishing a series on the book of 1 John. We've said kind of the thesis statement of the book is 1 John 5, verse 13. These things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And we've talked about this this theme, this context of how do we know we're genuine Christians. He's contrasting uh, genuine, real Christians with fake Christians, specifically the Gnostics in this context. From the Greek gnosis, knowledge, they claimed a superior knowledge. They claimed they had insight nobody else had. And the insight was the flesh is pure evil, therefore God could not assume human flesh. They denied the incarnation. So John emphasizes that God sent Christ into the flesh, uh, emphasizes the incarnation throughout this epistle. And so they denied uh, the deity of Christ, they denied the humanity of Christ, they denied that Jesus was Christ, and they denied that Christ was Jesus. And so John addresses that throughout this book, and in part of exposing who the false Christians were, as the other, those left behind as they went out from among us, and they're disturbed They're unsettled by that. How do we know that we're real Christians? How do we know we're genuine? And so we see the criteria he gives throughout this epistle, how we can know that we're really following Christ, how we know that we're really a genuine Christian, how we can know with certainty, with confidence, not complacency, but with confidence, with assurance that we possess eternal life, that if the Lord returned in our lifetime or when we die, that we're going to go be with the Lord. And I think that's a really important subject. I hope you found it helpful and relevant Uh, To you, because I believe in places where the preaching is strong, which seems to be few and far between as time goes on, where there's strong preaching and conviction, you're going to have times of introspection in such a place. You're going to question. You're going to be motivated, inspired. Your conscience is going to be trained and very sensitive, and that's a good thing. But there's a need also to balance that with teaching on assurance. And so we've looked at these evidences that we are... uh, real Christians, that we possess eternal life, and we've said that we could kind of divide the book up, and we have, based upon these themes that John cycles back to over and over. He used a, a literary technique known as amplification, where he'll say that, he'll talk about this theme, and he'll come back to it a few chapters later, a few verses later, and you'll think, he just said that, but he comes back and he takes a wider swath, a different angle, a different nuance, and so we've kind of divided up these evidences of eternal life based upon the God is statements. He says God is life, God is light, and God is love. And so the evidence that we belong to God, that we abide in God, and that God abides in us is that we have life, new life through the new birth. He talks a lot about that, how we know we've been born again. We have life, we have light, and we have love. And so he talked about life, new life, the new birth in part one. We spent I think three or four parts on light. We talked about our profession. He emphasizes what you believe matters because what you believe impacts, impacts how you behave. And so your doctrine matters. He's, he's, he's dealing with Gnostic heresy and addressing Gnostic heresy. And so what you believe matters. Your doctrine matters. What you profess matters. We talked about confession, that we're not perfect and he, go, he deals with both extremes. You need to be trying your best, but don't claim perfection. In fact, if you claim perfection, you're not a real Christian. Real Christians who are walking in the light are confessing sin. Part of walking in the light is confessing sin. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? And so he deals with perfectionism, which can rob our assurance. And I talked about that. And then he talks about our practice. Our practice does matter. Our profession matters. Confession matters. Our practice matters. Your general direction, not that you're perfect, but your present active tense, your pattern, your lifestyle, your habit. We don't want to practice sin, un- sin unmitigated, uninterrupted. And so we talked about life, light, and then last time we began this two-part series. To finish the series, we talked about love. And we talked last time about how uh, who we love and what we love is evidence that God's love is in us. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how God's love cast out, Man's hate, how God's love cast out our indifference. And then finally, how God's love perfected, not sinless perfection, not flawless love, that's not what he's talking about, but completed, actioned, activated. God's love actioned in our lives will cast out unproductive fear in our life. And so, 1 John 4, beginning in verse 13, John writes, By this we know... Here's that word again. We know that we abide in him and he in us. And he goes on to say in verse 16, he bookends this text right here. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And so this letter we've seen is helping us to be sure that we abide in God and God abides in us. We see that virtually in every chapter over and over that word abide, how we know we abide in God, God abides in us. How do we know that? Well, in this very text, He gives us some criteria, just in these few verses in 1 John chapter 4. He begins by saying, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because, here's a reason, He has given us of His Spirit. And certainly we don't possess uh, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit that many possess in the first century. We don't possess the Spirit in that way. But we have the Spirit's influence and what the Spirit inspired and confirmed through those miracles, through the Word of God. And that Spirit, that Word influences us, teaches us to love God and love others. In fact, the first fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is love. And so the Spirit produces a character and a lifestyle that's in harmony with the Spirit and Word of God. We know this by the Spirit of God within us. It's interesting, he Book ends, how we know we abide in God and God abides in us, and he's talking about this theme of love. But in between, he seems to leave the theme of love to talk about confessing Christ, which he also, in dealing with Gnosticism, denying Christ, the Antichrist, he's emphasized confessing Christ in various ways throughout this letter. Verse 14 and 15, "...we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world," Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Same thing he said in the prologue in the beginning of this letter, 1 John 1, 2. The life was manifested and we have seen, speaking of the apostles and inspired writers, and we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The Father has sent the Son. That's the message. And that word sent is in the perfect tense. And that means that it's an act an event that's happened in the past, but the results of that event continue into the present. We enjoy the results, the benefits of the Father sending the Son into the present right now. He sent the Son as Savior of the world. Same thing He said in 1 John 2 and verse 2. We've studied this verse a lot in this series. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, not just for Christians, but potentially for everyone, but also for the whole world. He sent the Son, not for limited atonement, contrary to the doctrines and tenets of Calvinism, He sent the Son to save potentially the whole world, whoever would, whosoever will. And so, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. The evidence of whether you abide in God and whether God abides in you is how you respond to this testimony. How you respond to the truth and the reality and the testimony that the Father sent His Son. That's the proof. See the same thing earlier in this chapter, verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, speaking of the apostles and inspired writers. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. When you consider the testimony that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus is Christ and Christ is Jesus, how do you respond to that? Do you confess that truth? Do you confess that reality in your words and in your action? In faith? Working through love. That's the proof. That's the evidence. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Why? Because God embodies truth. God is the essence of truth. Therefore, those who confess this ultimate truth, Jesus is the Son of God, abide in the God of that truth. Whoever confesses. And again, we see probably an allusion to, he's dealing with Gnosticism and what they were teaching, what they were confessing. And we've talked about confessing Christ is more than mental acknowledgement, more than mental consent. It's not just merely an expression with our lips and with our mouths. It's an expression in our life, in our habit, in our practice. Jesus Himself said, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I ask of you? Many will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And so how do we respond to the truth of Father sent His Son? Do we confess that truth in our words and in our actions. And so finally he says, we see this in loving others. And that summarizes the Spirit in us, it teaches us, influences us to love God and love others. Confessing Christ includes loving God and loving others in our life and in our actions. 1 John four twelve. no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. says the same thing just a few verses later. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in Him. It's interesting, Paul says virtually the same thing. Places like 1 Thessalonians, we've been studying that as part of Justin's series. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was confident, was sure, was convinced knew the Christians at Thessalonica were genuine, were real Christians, because the proof, it was evident in their work of faith and labor of love. 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 10, Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face, and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to you all. And obviously, he's not talking about a perfect in the sense of flawless love and flawless faith, else there would be no need for that to increase, no need for that to abound, no need for continuous improvement we've studied from, in First Thessalonians. But Paul and John are very similar, not surprisingly, both inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, and what they say, what they consider evidences of authenticity, evidences of genuine Christianity. They say you'll see it in growing faith, in growing love. You'll see it in a working faith and a labor of love. That's the proof. And so, with those introductory remarks and comments, we'll get into our three main points this morning. Number one, God's love cast out man's hate. Number two, God's love cast out our indifference. And finally, God's love perfected, not flawless perfection, but actioned, completed, coming full circle, reflected back to God in our lives, in our actions, loving others. God's love perfected, actioned, will cast out unproductive fear in our life. So we're we'll going to begin by talking about how God's love cast out man's hate. The new birth, eternal life, we saw this in part one, makes you love. God, the brethren, other people. The new birth, eternal life makes you love, not hate. I think about Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and He talks about kingdom living and how you know you're a citizen of the kingdom in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees and those who aren't. In the kingdom, And he emphasizes the heart. He takes it back to the why, as was his custom. And I think about places like Matthew 5, verse 21, and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Same attitude. Think about the difference between anger and hate and murder. He talks about the difference between lust and adultery. Difference is the opportunity or the act. Same heart, same attitude. And people with murderous attitudes don't have eternal life in them. And so in 1 John 2, John talks about, we've talked about this in our practice, he talks about how keeping the commandments, if you love me, keep my commandments, keeping the commandments in general is proof that we're abiding in God and God's abiding in us. And then he gets specific In the verses that follow by talking about the commands to love, the greatest commands, Paul says, they fulfill all the commands, flow from the command to love God and love others. He says, you'll see your new birth, you'll see that you've been born again, that God abides in you. The test of the reality of your new birth is in your love for God and your love for other people. And so he says, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, He says, hate is the evidence one is blind to the life, light, and love of God in Christ. In love of God, in love of others is evidence I once was blind, but now I see. That's the proof. That tests the reality of your new birth. The darkness of ignorance and indifference and unbelief and hate recedes as the light of Christ shines into our hearts, shines into our minds, shines into our lives and radiates through us in Christ. And so John, in this letter, wants to provide assurance to those who are genuine, to those who are obedient and loving, and he wants to take away a false sense of security that we don't want to those who are disobedient and those who are unloving. And so how is it a new old commandment? I have thought about that looking at these verses. How is it an old commandment, but it's a new commandment? How is it the, the old new commandment? Certainly, love for God and love for your neighbor was not a new concept. It was taught in the Old Testament. Jesus taught it in His ministry. They had heard it from the beginning, I think, in reference to their conversion. From the beginning of their Christianity, they had been commanded to love God and love other people. And so possibly, He's stressing the oldness in part to contrast the newness of the Dostic heresy, which was a new, dangerous doctrine. But notice He says, It's an old commandment, but at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. And I think he's referring back to what he records in his gospel account in John 13, verse 34 and 35, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so how is it new? I believe it's new in him. It's true in Him. The true light is already shining. I believe it's new in that love like this had never been manifested before. To this measure, to this extent, that's what made it new. The love that was in Him, in Jesus, now comes into the life of every new believer. It's new with every new experience in Christ. That's what made it new. And John says the love of Christ in us is proof that we are in the light and not in darkness. Because if you think and talk, And walk like darkness, you're in darkness. That's the point. But if we're in the light, as He is in the light, we're going to be concerned about others. We're going to choose to love others. That's the word we see over and over. And it's agape love. Not just Philadelphia, brotherly love, not just a love of affection. But agape love is like God, we choose to seek the saving interest of others. That's the love we're talking about, unselfish devotion to the welfare of another, not merely emotional sentiment, not just how we feel, not just our affections, it's our actions. It's a love of the will that chooses to love someone who needs to be loved, regardless of if they deserve it, regardless of how attractive or unattractive they are in different senses. We choose to love them no matter what, no matter how much they deserve it, It's sacrificial love because there's a need for service and there's an opportunity for us to sacrifice. That's why we do it. That's love. And notice the stark contrast, as was his custom in his writings. There's seemingly no middle ground with John. It's all or nothing. You know, it's black and white, love and hate, light and darkness, life and death. And he stresses and he's emphasizing, if you you have one, you don't have the other. I think that's really convicting sometimes. We think, well, you know, I don't hate. It's not proactive, something I'm doing to somebody. I don't hate somebody. But it's not just what you're not doing. It's just as much what you are doing. And we can... If you don't love somebody with agape love, a love of the will, a love of a choice, a decision, a love of action, you don't take action to love people, the opposite of that is hate. If you don't love, you have hate. And the only protection and prevention against hate is agape love. And that truth leads John to discuss these principles of love and hate in detail. And he, I believe the, the main admonition, the main point, is given in verse 11 of 1 John 3. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And Then he contrasts the example of Cain with the example of Christ. And he says in verse 12, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And that word murdered means... He butchered his brother. He slit his throat. That's what hate does. It devours and it destroys in contrast to the love of Christ that lays down his life. Love seeks to save and rebuild and restore. So why did Cain murder his brother? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Love does not resent someone for doing the right thing. 1 Corinthians 13. Love doesn't resent someone for being superior to us in some way. And that's very convicting. This is the form of hate. I think sometimes we, should, we think, well, I, don't, I would never murder. Maybe, we have, maybe we're a killer at heart in truth. We have the attitude of a killer, but think, ne- I would never murder. But maybe as a Christian sometimes our problem is the envy that relates to hate and the envy that relates to murder. Abel's good... And Cain's bad made him feel convicted and made him feel guilty. And instead of responding to that conviction and that guilt with repentance, he responded with resentment and murder. What about us? Does our love for God and others, does our love rejoice in truth every time we see it? Do we rejoice in beauty and everything and everyone we see it in? And so they contrast the example of Cain with the example of Christ. Cain is an example of hate. Christ the example of love. Cain killed his brother. Christ laid down his life for all men. And if we're to avoid the hate that motivated Cain, we have to adopt and embrace the love that motivated Christ. And it's this willingness to give what one has for the sake of another. That's the essence of true love. That's the essence of agape love. Love is practical, it's sacrificial, it's benevolent. It provides what's needed, it lays down, it shares what it has to offer. So he says in verse 16 By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought morally obligated to lay down our lives for others. That should be our response. Father sent His Son. How do we react to that? We respond like this. We, morally obligated, we ought to lay down our lives. If we've experienced and we appreciate and understand as much as we possibly can, God's love in sending Christ, we should emulate that love in giving ourselves. That's the point. That's the response. No one has truly appreciated, truly understood the love of God in Christ. If you've kneeled at the cross of Christ... How in the world can you go back to a life of selfishness? How can that be your response? If that's how we respond, if we've claimed to, to be born again, and we've kneeled at the foot, of, and we've shared in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and we turn around and go back to selfishness, you don't get it. You don't know God. You don't know the new birth. You don't know Christ. And so God's love cast out hate, and God's love cast out our indifference. He goes on to say, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So again, this is convicting. Maybe it's not murderous hate. Maybe our problem is indifferent hate. we am talking about laying down our time, our talent, our treasure. Talk talking about laying down our budgets and our schedules in our living, our giving, in our evangelizing. Maybe that's how we hate people. We have the world's goods. It means we have the the, the means and the opportunities, and yet we're indifferent. We close, we shut up our heart. We close off our compassion and our empathy. And his question then is, how does the love of God abide in him? And the answer is, it's a rhetorical question for emphasis. The answer is, it's not. (laughs) That's the point. If that's our habit, not that we're perfect. I mean, he stressed that. We're not going to love perfectly. But if that's our habit, if that's our routine, if that's our nature, if that's our practice, if that's our present tense, if we make no sacrifice for others, for God and for others, if we're ruled by selfishness, eternal life does not dwell in murderers. It doesn't dwell in those who hate. It doesn't dwell in those who are indifferent and self-centered and selfish. Those are characteristics Of the children of the devil, not children of God. And if you're a killer at heart, if you're indifferent at heart, your claim to know God and your claim to know Christ means nothing. That's his point. True children of God, by this we know, true children of God are characterized by selfless sacrifice. And not only is that love a testimony to those around you, by this all men will know, Jesus said, but it's a reassuring testimony to yourself, to your heart, to your conscience. Because profession without practice, profession without proof, is not enough for those around you. It's not enough for you either. Your conscience will assault you and your assurance. And so he makes an argument from the greater to the lesser. If you're going to lay down your life like Christ did, shouldn't you lay down your livelihood? You know, we talk about, I would die for the church. I would die for Christ. I would die. The question is, will you live for him? That's sometimes the harder part. Do you live for him? How does the love of God abide in him? We see a brother or somebody in need of the things to sustain life physically, but also spiritually. And we're not touched, we're not moved to do something about that. How does the love of God abide? In? And the answer again, it doesn't. This epistle emphasizes over and over you can't separate your theory from your practice, your profession from your practice. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Galatians 6:10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are the household of faith. Galatians or James 1:27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. My little children, 1 John 3.18, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. He's not saying your words don't matter. They do. The Bible teaches that. Part of how we love people is in our words, what we say to them, what we say about them. But He's saying don't just love in your your mouth only, in, in, in expressions of your mouth only. James 2, that's so much the context of this chapter. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says... To them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Agape love, godly love, is not shallow and superficial. It's not in what we say, it's in what we sacrifice, it's in what we lay down. And so, God's love cast out man's hate, God's love cast out our indifference, and finally, God's love put into action activated in our lives, will cast out unproductive fear so that we have boldness, so that we have confidence, so that we have assurance in our life. In First John 4, verse 17, tells us how to get something we all want. And verse 18 tells us how to get rid of something we all don't want. First John 4, 17, "...by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because..." As he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We all want to have boldness and confidence regarding our future, a hope for the future, a confidence for the day of judgment, and we want to cast unproductive fear out of our lives. We're not talking about getting rid of productive fear. The Bible talks about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge, reverential, respectful, Fear that a child should have for their father of disappointing them and disobeying them. That's a necessary fear. And if you lose that fear, there are some serious consequences in your practice. And you're going to lose your assurance in that way. So we're not talking about getting rid of all fear. We're talking about getting rid of that unproductive fear. Terror and dread for the future that's characteristic of a slave with a heartless master. That's not your father. In anticipation of that expected Punishment. If you've ever experienced that in various ways in your life, where you dread something in the future, it becomes a torment in the present. Now you live your life right now. We talked about the 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 two men flying. One had flown a lot and had confidence; he was going to arrive, and so he enjoyed the trip. The other one had not flown before and was terrified with anxiety. It's possible you can get the same destination. It's possible you can go to heaven without the confidence and assurance you should have as a Christian. Although I would argue you're at risk of getting discouraged and despondent and disheartened, losing your faith, your hope, and your love and walking away. But it's possible you can wrestle with assurance and not have the confidence and boldness you should have in Christ and walk around like Eeyore without the joy you should have. I guess it's possible you might still get there, but the journey is entirely different than what God intended for you and your testimony. And that fear, I think, John says, could be evidence that your love, the love of God, has not been completed in your life, has not come full circle. It's a fear that results like with parents when you're sneaking around doing something you shouldn't do. It's that type of fear. Dread of getting caught, dread of your future, the consequences. It's the fear that comes from unloving deeds that cause us to dread and fear God's wrath and God's anger. And so we need to have a confidence that casts out fear. That's not a complacent confidence. It's not casting out all fear. It's not casting out productive fear. We need to take the day of judgment seriously and be motivated by that. Jesus taught about hell as much as anybody and judgment as much as anybody. But John teaches we can approach the day of judgment with confidence and boldness and assurance, with fearless confidence if we abide in Christ, if we have faith, hope, and love. We can cast out. That word, look at the, the word cast out here. It's like rearing back, crow hopping, Uncle Rico throwing the football over the mountain. That's the kind of vigor or zeal we're to cast out unproductive fear from our life. Notice the three clauses in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. The result of having God's love put into action in our life is that it gives us confidence for the future. And the reason that God's love actioned gives us confidence for the future is that it shows that we're like Christ. It shows we're following Christ. It shows we're a real Christian. That's why it gives us confidence. By this, what's the this refer, I think it refers back to what he just said, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. You abide in God's love. You abide in God by having God's love actioned or activated in your life. Perfect love is God's love coming into our lives, into completion, being actioned as we love each other. Perfected love is God's love for us expressing itself and our love for other people, coming full circle as God intended. Perfected love, again, does not mean flawless love or flawless faith. John's had a lot to say about that. Chapter 1. The word here means finished, completed, or accomplished. We can see this word in other places in John's gospel account. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to finish. Same word, His work. It didn't mean that that Jesus took a flawed work of God and made it flawless. It means He actioned it. He fulfilled the plan. John 5, verse 36, But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. Same words, the very works that I do. John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, same word, fulfilled. It didn't mean Jesus took flawed Scripture, flawed prophecies, and made them flawless. It means He actioned them. He fulfilled them as God intended. James 2, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with His works, and faith was completed, same word, by His works. So perfected love means God's love coming into completion completing its journey, reaching its goal, fulfilling its purpose, reflected back to God in our love for each other, in our love for others. So how does that lead to confidence in the day of judgment? Again, it's not that our love is sinless and flawless, but it's that there's a walk. If you've been born again, there's a walk, not just a talk. When you walk the walk instead of talking the talk, and we know this in in everyday life and various activities, when there's a walk and not just a talk, you get confident. There's a confidence. When there's just a talk, a lot of talk, but there's not a walk, you lose confidence. The more we increase our love, the more we perfect and activate and action that love, the less we have to fear about the future. Love expresses itself in service to others. James 2, Matthew 25, When saw we hungry and thirsty? and As much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. By that standard, we're going to be judged on that great day of accounting. The love of God, action in us, gives us confidence because it gives us assurance. It reassures us. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. Loving God. Each other, loving God by loving each other in our actions, our walk, our practice practically, is part of how we reassure ourselves that we've been born of God. That God's life, God's light, God's love is living in us, is manifested in us. You know, one of the the biggest reasons why many Christians have so little confidence, don't have the assurance and boldness they should have, is because they have a love that doesn't walk. They do a lot of talking about evangelism, about serving, about fellowship. There's not a lot of of walking. When we claim to have the love of God abiding in us, when we claim to know God and love God, but there's no proof, there's no effort to share that love with others, there's a contradiction. There's a dissonance. There's a disconnect. There's a pretense. There's hypocrisy. And we've talked about those things will destroy your assurance. Your conscience will assault you and accuse you of being an inauthentic fraud. You're a phony, and you're a fake. Notice the last clause in verse 17, "...because as He is, so also are we in this world." Perfected love, practical love, action love gives us confidence in the day of judgment because it shows, it proves we're like Jesus. We belong to Christ, and God won't condemn people who are like Jesus. Jesus. God won't condemn people who have been conformed to the image of His Son. That's the people who are going to be saved. That's the plan of salvation. And so, if there's no family resemblance, there should be no confidence. There should be no boldness in the presence of God. And the reason there's no fear in perfected love is that there's no threat of punishment for a loving person, those who love God and love others as the Bible defines it. When you love God and you love others in word and in deed, there's no threat, there's no dread that God's going to punish you for that. Fear comes, again, we talk about this, when we sneak around, we do something we shouldn't be doing or we aren't doing something, we, that's when we fear. Perfected love, God's love action in us, put into action, cast out that fear. And so if you want to be bold, if you want to be confident, if you want to have assurance you need to develop a practical love for god and for other people hereby conclusion by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before and by what he's just said enables us to know that we are of the truth and that means our hearts are reassured if our love is evident in our actions not just our words we know with certainty with confidence not with complacency but we know we are of the truth we are of god and reassure our hearts before Him. That word there means to steal, to placate, to, to quiet, to persuade. Knowledge of the reality of the truth that God's love is genuinely in us and being activated in our lives, quiets the fears that arise in our hearts because we understand we are imperfect as we strive to walk in the light. And so he says, for whenever our heart condemns us or whenever our conscience convicts us, God is greater then our heart and He knows everything. As a Christian, my conscience is going to be very sensitive. We've talked about that previously in confession. That's a good thing. If you're in a congregation or a place where the Word of God is high and lifted up and exalted and there's a high standard in your home and in the the church, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's a warning system designed by God to to assault you, (laughs) to attack you. It's like if you didn't feel pain physically, you'd kill yourself happens a lot of times with leprosy. You don't feel stuff. You you eventually, you kill yourself. You touch things and do things because you don't feel anything. So as a Christian, my conscience can be very active. That's a good thing. It's also a good thing God's greater. God's, there's a standard. There's a higher court than my conscience, thank God. God's greater than our hearts and He knows all things. The God who knows me and knows what I've done better than I do, the God who has a higher standard, than I do, the God who hates my sin more than I do has pronounced me justified in the blood of His Son if I abide in Christ. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So in my imperfection, what do I do? When my conscience attacks me and assaults me, I repent and I confess and I respond to the incarnation and the gospel in that way and then I turn to a place of gratitude for God's grace and my imperfection and I trust God and I trust the promise. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And obviously, he's not talking about someone who has a misinformed conscience, a depraved conscience. Your conscience is going to be as high or low as your moral standard, your moral code, whatever that is. Not a misinformed, depraved conscience, not a silenced conscience. That's the problem we have today. A lot of places are not a need for assurance because you're okay, I'm okay, we're all going to heaven. How could God not take me to heaven? How could I not be there? We're not talking about a seared or a hardened conscience. But we're talking about a heart, a conscience that's been trained, that's captive to the Word of God and the standard of God. Finally, John says in 1 John 4, verse 19, we love because He first loved us. We don't love to induce God's love, to merit God's love. God's love precedes our love, and it evokes, it compels, it inspires, it motivates, it empowers ours. And ultimately, that love gives us confidence because it's that love that sent Christ to die for our sins, to shed His blood, and that blood continues, present active tense, to cleanse us of our sins as we confess our sin and strive to walk in the light. The love that saved us from sin and saved us from sinning and empowered us to a walk, a practice, an affection, a direction that confirms our salvation and faith and our standing before God. Paul says in several places, if you're a Christian, you long for, you, you anticipate, you welcome the return of Christ. And that's what God wants for us as His children, to live in in a confident, not a complacent, but a confident, joyful, faith, hope, love, expectation for Christ's return, not in terror and dread, in fear of judgment at the hands of a heartless master. And I hope this series will help you to to live with joy, to live with faith, hope, and love, to live with assurance that it will help you and continue to help you as it has helped me. And that as we sing all these wonderful songs, we've talked about this in a previous study, all these beautiful songs we sing about our home in heaven, we don't have to sing those songs like Eeyore anymore. We don't have to sing those songs with a lack of faith and a lack of hope and a lack of love. We don't have to sing blessed uncertainty. Jesus might be mine. If we all get to heaven, what a day that might be. But we can sing with the Spirit and the understanding at the top of our lungs, with all of our heart. my children do with this song? Who the Son sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. That's not arrogant complacency. It's humility. It's arrogant to say, tell God He's wrong when He says you're justifying the blood of my Son. It's good enough. My blood's greater than your, than your sin. That's what's arrogant. And I can say that with bold confidence and assurance, not because of what I've done, because of what He's done. He's for me, not against me. And who He says he, I am, that's who I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And if you want that to be your song this morning, if it's not your song this morning, make it your song. God will make it your song in Christ. Be born again. Have a, have a new birth, a real new birth. Be resurrected walking in the light. Confess your sin as a Christian if you need to do that. Walk in the light. Say, I'm imperfect and I need your help. God will make, make you His child if you'll make Him your father. If you respond to the Father's invitation, if you need to do that, He invites you to come as we stand and sing.